you ever think about what you think about? Most people just let their thoughts run. I really think that. People, uh, just their thought life is just basically a chain reaction. One thought leads to another thought, leads to another thought, and there's not a lot of thought that goes into what the next thought is going to be. It's, it is. It's just a chain reaction of things that happen. And it's either produced by the thoughts that came before it, automatically producing the next thing, taking it in a certain specific direction, or we have outside stimuli in the world, you know, are the different senses, so the things that we listen to might kind of change that, but it all depends on, you know, what you're hearing through the media or the person next to you is saying, and that might determine your thoughts. But for so many people, usually their thought life is just a chain reaction that they don't take any control of, that they don't think about what is going on inside of here. But we shouldn't just let our thoughts run. We shouldn't be those that, that don't think about or control or discipline our, our stream of consciousness. We need to do that. Not only is it extremely healthy for you to take control of your stream of consciousness and what you think about, but it's also biblical, as we'll see. So let's read together Philippians. We just got two verses today, but there's plenty to talk about. Philippians chapter 4, 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, he's getting to the end here. He says, finally, he's talking to Christians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's fill our minds and think about these great and important verses. And we're going to be spending most of our time in the first verse here because there's quite a bit that we get to unpack and we get to think about. Uh, But we'll summarize it like this. Think about what you think about. That God, through Paul here in Scripture, is calling you to think about what is going on in your mind. What is going on in in the core of your being, what you are thinking about. And so the basic command in this passage comes at the end of of that verse, of verse 8. Because he lists all these things that you should think about. There's eight different things, so we're going to look at those. But then he gives the actual command and he says, think about these things. And so he says that, I think we need to filter our minds, okay? Because there's all kinds of garbage, there's all kinds of wrong things that don't meet the criteria that we're going to be looking at. So we need to filter our minds and our thinking from either stuff that's already in there or stuff that could be coming into there to protect our mind from that. But I think it's also, it's not just enough to say to filter our mind. Because in this passage, it's not just saying, don't think about these other things. But it's saying that you are supposed to be thinking about dwelling on certain things. So we need to not only filter our thinking, but we need to be filling our thinking with the right things. So write this down. Don't just filter your thoughts, fill your thoughts. Don't just filter your thoughts, you need to fill your thoughts. And as we're doing this, we're filtering and we're filling our thoughts 
then I hope that instead of just a, a train of thought, like most people have, uh, I don't think God wants you to have a train of thought. Because if you're in a train that goes in one direction, it just follows the track. God wants you to have more an automobile of thought. And you know, the difference with an automobile is you control where it goes. You control the direction, and that is what God wants you to do. You decide where it goes. So, in this passage, he gives us a list of eight things. I want us to think about, ponder these. These would be great to even put to memory. And the first, he says, is to think about things that are true. Whatever is true. And what does that mean? Sometimes people say, well, I have my truth, you have your truth, everyone has their different truth. But if that's what you think truth is, you've confused truth uh, with just opinion. Opinion is something that is different. If I said, you know, um, what, is, what is the best pie? And then I said, well, the correct answer is pecan pie. Well, I, I can't really say that because that's a matter of opinion. You may like that and or you might like something else. By the way, if you've just picked out pastor likes pecan pie, I do need to say, you guys are beautiful people, but if like five people bring me pecan pies, I'm going to be weighing 900 pounds, okay? Because I'm the only person in my family that eats them. But that's opinion, where actual truth, and a lot of our society doesn't realize this, truth is that which matches reality. Truth is that which conforms to reality or fact. Something that is actually objectively true. There is a specific amount of people that are in this room right now. And it would take a while. We could count and we could see what that number is. And you might have guesses. And if we guess, maybe some people will get it right. Some people will get it closer to others. If you guessed that there were 20 people in this room, I know that you would be wrong. If you guessed that there were 20,000 people in this room, I know that you would be wrong. And if we said who's closest to the actual number, we would count and because there is an actual number that are in this room. It's an objective thing. And there are certain things in life that are not a matter of opinion, but they're actually objective truth. There's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And it doesn't depend on uh, what uh, society decides is the, you don't take a vote on what two plus two equals. Okay? You don't uh, have the government say, well, as the authority, you know, pass a law or a thing that tells us what two plus two equals. Two plus two equals four. And it's always going to equal four. And that's what two plus two equals. And that's just the objective fact. But truth is something real. And so we are supposed to be filling our minds with the things that conform to reality, things that conform to facts. So it means not lies. We're not filling our heads with things that are, we, that are untrue, whether we realize it's untrue or we don't realize that it is true. We don't fill our lives with things that are false, with fictions, even if it's a pleasant fiction, even if it's a useful fiction. We want to fill our minds with what is actually true. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote once, he said, live not by lies. And we live in a world that will push us to lies. He was coming out of uh, communism uh, in Europe and Russia. And uh, there was so much propaganda and so much uh, pressure by the government there that they, if they told you 2 plus 2 equals 5, you better, you better admit and say that 2 plus 2 equals 5 or else they're going to come after you and they might put you in jail. 
And some people say, well, I'm just going to go along with it because if I don't say 2 plus 2 equals 5, I might lose my job or this might happen. I can't imagine if that would be the case today where uh, the government would tell us to, to believe. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> Live not by lies. We need to be people that are of the truth and that believe the truth. The devil, the devil loves lies. Jesus talked about that, John 8, 44. He was talking to the Pharisees, and he said to them, quote, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So yes, live not by lies. That's of the devil. He's a, he is the one that is the father of and behind falsehoods. And remember, sometimes the falsehoods can be bold-faced lies. Sometimes they can be just sneaky, twisting the truth. And sometimes they can be pleasant, desirable fictions that we want to believe. But if it's not truth, it's not worthy of being in our mind. We want to be dwelling on things that are accurate. Jesus, on the other hand, he said, John 14, 6, this is Jesus talking, I am the way, and the truth and the life. And then he went on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus there, he's either speaking the truth or he is speaking a lie. If there are all kinds of different ways for you to get to the Father, if there are all kinds of different ways for you to be saved and go to heaven, then Jesus Christ is a liar. But if he is speaking the truth, it means that there is one way, and there is. And when we understand it, we, we get why that's the case. Uh, the Son of God had to come down, be fully God and fully human, to do what only the God-man could do. Dying on the cross for humans, he needed to be human, with a death that was valuable enough to, to pay for all of our sins. And therefore, he needed to be God, and he needed to be sinless as well. And so there's, there's no other way. There's no other opportunity. It's not like there's all these paths up the mountain. And you say, well, I think there is. Well, then you're saying that your truth is right, but Jesus' truth is wrong. We need to fill our heads and our thinking with the actual truth. We need to help our kids, parents, to believe the truth. There's going to be a world that is pushing all kinds of lies on them, and we, we recognize that. And we want to help our kids understand and know the truth. I'm going to say this next part. I'll touch on it lightly. Um, and some of you might say, well, Pastor Nell, you're meddling. But parents, I want you to think about this. You know, we have a uh, little bit Christmas is coming up. Do your kids believe the truth about Christmas? Like I said, there are, there are fantasies, there are myths, and they can be fun if the kids know that they're myths. I'm not going to mention specific things, but I hope that you are teaching your kids what the actual truth is. Christmas is about Jesus Christ. Other things might be kind of fun to, to know about, but Christmas is about Jesus Christ and God loves you so much that he sent his son. And mom and dad love you too. Something to consider. So we're supposed to fill our heads, hopefully fill our kids' heads with truth, that which conforms to reality or fact. Second, it says that which is honorable. Now the word honorable can uh, be translated as noble, it has an idea of something that's grave. That sounds like pretty heavy, but you know, there's certain things that, 
uh, command respect, that they're not light, that they're not flippant. So we can define it this way, as, as something dignified that evokes special respect. That you live your life in a way that is, that is respectful, that other people see it and they realize this is a person that's living their life in a, in, a, in a way that's heavy. It doesn't mean they don't have joy. They have joy. Paul talked about that. And it doesn't mean you can ever tell a joke, but you, you care about certain things and you're living your life in a way that the important things are important to you. It's been noted that when Paul uses this word, he always uses it with reference to, to men and women whose spiritual maturity, dignity, and authority make them worthy of others' respect. This is a requirement uh, given in the list for, for deacons and their wives to live in a way that is honorable. And so deacons, wives of deacons, were called to live this way. And we're all called to model ourselves after that. Not in a way that's dishonorable or just um, uh, insubstantial would be the opposite. We're also called to fill our heads with, with things, with thoughts that are, uh, that are just. And by this we mean things that conform to, to God's justice. That which conforms to, to God's standard of, of right and wrong. There's a lot of standards out there. And if you were going to measure something, if something was, was straight and upright, uh, you need something straight and upright to measure that against. And so, again, this is something that ultimately it finds its fulfillment in the Lord. Each of these find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord. He is the one that tells us what, what true and ultimate justice actually is. And we need to measure it against that. And he tells us not just in what we, we think or our opinion, uh, but we, we know that through what he tells us in his word. And so through all of this, we need to be filling our head with his word, uh, just coming under that authority, that which conforms to God's justice. Again, the world is filled with all kinds of fake justice. Uh, justice is one of those buzzwords today that people love to talk about, and they will use the label of justice for all kinds of things that, if you're reading your Bible, you say that's the opposite of what actual justice is. And not that we're going to throw out justice, God cares about justice, but not the world's definition of justice, but God's view of what actual justice actually is. So again, to actually know this, to actually know what is just, and therefore to fill our heads with thoughts that are just, you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be taking uh, your cues, your thoughts, your, this needs to be your standard to know what is just and what is unjust. And we live in a very unjust world. And if that's all you're used to, you're going to think that injustice is actually justice. We also need to focus on things that are pure. And we could define this in a few different ways. We'll give a few here. Pure means unstained, unpolluted, not contaminated by, by evil or other things. Uh, so it has the idea of being, um, being clean. Um, it's not unstained. Uh, so the opposite would be things that are stained, that are polluted, that are defiled, contaminated. And of course, for something to be contaminated, you're starting with something good and then you're adding some kind of impurity to it. Where all of a sudden, that which had been good now, now is, is not pure. It's, it's got evil, it's got contamination put into it. So it's not always the case that there's something that's just pure evil Okay, obviously we should reject something if it's pure evil, but 
we also need to make sure that it's, it's not just good to say, well, it's, it's half pure and it's half impure. We want to, our goal is to focus on things that are, that are actually pure. The word here of pure is used in a few different places in God's word. In its use of God's wisdom, James 3.17, God's wisdom is pure. It's used in 1 Peter 3.2 of uh, a wife's conduct is to be pure. And it's used of Jesus Christ himself. 1 John 3.3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So Jesus, again, is the ultimate example of this. He is the ultimate pure one. And although we are impure, and when we're saved, God saves you while you're still impure, okay? He doesn't wait for you to clean up your life and then he'll save you. That's important to get. I think there are some people that think, I can't come to God until I have, I've cleaned up my life totally. Well, we're, we are supposed to repent, but repent means that we're, we're turning on sin. We're saying, I recognize this is impure. I don't want this in my life. God, help me to work against this. But we're turning to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Instead of uh, before saying, I, I love my sin, but I, I don't want you, Jesus. I hate you, I, or whatever. We're turning away from it and turning to him. But it doesn't mean that you have to make sure that your life is instantly pure. That's just unrealistic. And that's going to keep you from Christ because he is the only one that can actually start this process of purifying your heart. That process starts when you are born again. You get a new heart. But it is a, we've seen this in Philippians already, that it is a lifelong process of him purifying you from the inside out. And it never finishes in this life. So we aim to it. We want to be more pure and there will be a day coming when that process is complete for us, but we need to aim at him. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. So if you do hope in him and every believer hopes in Jesus Christ, if you don't hope in him, you're not a believer. So that means we need to be in this process of trying to make our hearts and our lives and our thoughts more and more pure. Like, like Jesus is. Um, I don't think this will come as any shock to you, but there's a lot of impurity in this world. There's a whole lot of impurity. And it is coming fast and it is coming hard and it is hard to, hard to escape it. I mean, you think of the media, you think of uh, different you know, thoughts, you think of things that people say, whether it's at the office or at the factory or on the bus, uh, commercials, the internet, and some of it is just absolute toxic filth that is coming at us. Obviously, one of the big application areas for this is human sexuality. And just how human sexuality, what was designed by God to be good, has been defiled by so many and been made to be so impure. We need to remember that sexuality is, is not something that is evil in itself. It was created by God. It was before the fall. God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so it was his idea, but it's something good that sin has corrupted and contaminated. And some people are just, again, pumping toxic sludge into that just uh, by, the, by the, the gallon after gallon after gallon. 
Olympic-sized swimming pools full of toxic sludge into this. And sometimes we can't separate it out. Um, in men's Bible study, we've been talking about, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and 7 right now. Hope you come. We got one more before we go on break. But I've been telling them the illustration maybe you've heard me use is that uh, sex is like fire. It's, it was created. It was a good thing. Fire is a good thing when it's where it's supposed to be. But it's very damaging when it gets out of where it's supposed to be. And it's supposed to be intended to be, designed to be between a husband and a wife that are married to each other. Hebrews 13.4, let, let marriage be held in honor among all. There's been some tragic things. It is a shame that our legislator have, have, in our country have chosen to do the opposite of that. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And sometimes it seems like, well, we're always talking about this in one way we need to because it's such a big issue. But also it shows that how important this is in the sense, well, think about it this way. The higher the original good of something, the greater the tragedy when it is defiled. You know, if you're one of these people that, you know, you doodle in your uh, sermon notes, and some people do that not just to distract themselves, but it you know, helps them pay attention, and I'm okay with it. Maybe doodle things that have something to do with the sermon. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? If you ended up spilling some coffee on your doodle, not a big deal. If you spilled coffee on a Monet painting, that's a bigger deal. So the more valuable that something was originally, the bigger a deal it is when it gets defiled. And so this, God's design for sexuality is such a big deal because it was so important that it is such a big deal that it's being defiled by our, by our country, our culture, and oftentimes in our lives. I'll say this means, because we're talking about our thought lives here, and our thought lives do come out, but it's in our thought lives. Pornography is a huge issue. And we need to reject that. We need to fight against that. If that is something that you struggle with, struggle with it. You know, when people tell me that they're struggling against a sin, I take that as a good thing because struggling shows that there's life. If dead people don't struggle, okay? If uh, you're having a wrestling match against a dead person, that dead person doesn't put up much of a fight. And if you're dead in your trespasses and sins like you were before Christ, you're not putting up a fight. But if you're struggling, you're fighting back, that's, that's a good thing. And this would be a definite area that you need to fight and you need to fight hard against. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You have heard it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he gives strong remedy for this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to... For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Not to say you need to take that literally, but it's, there's strong action that needs to be taken. And choices that need to be taken. Job, in 31.1, said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So there's something important. You're being taken, work at taking control of this. Work at purifying this in, in your mind, in your heart, to get these thoughts out. And if you're constantly taking these in, 
it, you know, it, it's hard to mop up the floor if you got the faucet just running and spilling all over the place. You got to turn off that, that faucet. You're still going to have troubles because these things are there and they're bouncing around and you need to put them aside and not dwell on them so that you can have them fade over time. Don't be bringing them back and replaying them. And parents, I want to talk to you again about this too because this is for us, but this is also for our kids and what is being pumped into their minds. And we think of everything going on with, with media, with social media, computers, uh, all of these different things. I really want you to think about what you are allowing access to for your kids. What is going on in their, their heads? I would suggest to you, parents, do not have your kids have internet browsers on their phone. They're going to be mad at you. They're going to say all their friends do. I think it's, it's a terrible idea. There can be other ways if they really need that that are public, that are monitored. But on your phone, you, know, you probably wouldn't let your kids drink out of a public toilet, would you? I'll leave it at that. Whatever is pure. He says also whatever is, whatever is lovely. I mean, like lovely, what is lovely? These flowers are lovely. But it really, it means... Uh, you know, things that, um, you know, evoke pleasure in us because of the beauty. It does have the idea of things that are pleasing in their beauty. I think, obviously, what we're supposed to be filling our head are, you know, these lovely things. This refers to moral loveliness. There's certain things that are, that are good because they are true, because they are right, because they are morally good. I'm filling our heads with that. You know what? Paul is talking about uh, things in pretty blanket terms. You know, whatever is lovely. And I think we need to realize that it is okay that there's certain things in this world that are just, that are just beautiful, that are just pleasing, that are, they reflect God in his purity, in his beauty, in his, the harmony of the way things are, and they come from God, and it is okay to also find delight in those type of things and filling our mind with those type of things. Things that are genuinely, gen, genuinely you know, beautiful. I think if there's art, there's God's creation, music. I mean, God created music and created our ears and our thinking a certain way that there is music that is just, I believe, not just subjectively beautiful, but there's an objective beauty to certain things. And I think God has created some things of beauty that they're, they're almost conduits to, to help us to think about him. And that even if we don't realize that the reason there is beauty in this world, you know, if you're an atheist, why is there even beauty? There's no real reason. All you need to do is survive and reproduce. But God has created beauty because he has created us with hearts that are designed to delight, that the delight ultimately finds its purpose in him. But there are other good gifts that he gives to us. And so I think we are wired to, to notice and find the you know, good, honorable, and right beauty that's in this world. When I was a kid, I, I had to be in elementary school, but I remember taking a field trip to, I believe it was the Milwaukee Public Museum, because I grew up in Wisconsin, and they had us uh, you know, go to a room and they did like, it was like a little laser light show, you know, which I thought was cool and, uh, back then. But in it, they, they were playing Paco Bell's Cannon, okay? And I was a kid, and whatever it was, and the lights down, and they had this going, and 
you know, normally kids, you know, they make fun of stuff, they goof around and all this. You know, I just got overwhelmed with emotion with this. I mean, because the song is just, it's objectively beautiful. And I was, I was like crying. And, um, you know, there's certain things that I think are supposed to, um, you know, evoke those feelings in us. And I think it's okay to find beauty in other things. But the key is to ultimately to recognize that all these things are gifts from God. And maybe the person that wrote that understood that and directly was doing this for the glory of God, or maybe it's just something by God's common grace. But I think it's okay for us to look for things that are beautiful. When you talk about art, there's a lot of art in this world right now, well, for a long time, that is not really beautiful. And sometimes people say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but there's some things that are objectively not beautiful. Because a lot of art, or what's called art, is therefore it's uh, basically shock value and to promote some kind of ideology. And so there's art that is uh, in the schools of brutalism or things that are just grotesque or things that are meant to be more provocative than actually beautiful. But there is, you know, in this world created, you know, sometimes by people and sometimes created just by the, uh, the, the finger of God, things that are genuinely lovely and beautiful. I think, too, this helps us to remember that there is a conjunction, let's say, between the good, the beautiful, and the true. And this is something that others have recognized, that ultimately, things that are ultimately good, ultimately uh, beautiful and ultimately true are all of those. You don't have something that is ultimately beautiful unless it's also good and true. So there's things that people might say, well, this, this, I find this beautiful, but if it's sin, it's not really beautiful. At the heart, it's ugly because sin is ugly. But things that are generally, genuinely good are also going to be beautiful and they're going to be true as well. These things joined together. So something is not sin because it's ugly, but it's ugly because it is sin. There's a certain ugliness to it, a a moral ugliness to it, a real ugliness to it. And we need to remember, you know, sin is ugly. It's supposed to be recognized by us as something that is actually ugly. Again, let me repeat, it's not sin because it's ugly, but sin always makes something ugly. Even on the surface, it may seem beautiful, in the world, beautiful in the world's way of thinking. And it's wrong to try to make sin look beautiful. But that's what Satan always does. He tries to make that sin look good. And that's what our sinful culture does as well. And that's also what the sinful part of your heart is going to want to do, is try to make that, that which is sin, which is actually ugly, look and appear beautiful and tempting to you. So fill your mind with things that are, that are lovely, Filter out things that are, that are not and fill your minds with the, with the good things. Next, things that are commendable. Let's say it like this. That which would be recommended. To commend something is to recommend something. Otherwise, things that are admirable. Things that should be spoken well of. This is a word that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, but we can figure out what it means from the way that it was used kind of other places. But think about if people knew what was going on in your mind, would it be something that they would say, that's, that's admirable, that's, those are good thoughts that you have. Those are good carefully chosen thoughts. 
the word was used oftentimes of, of speeches that people would give, and if they believed things were carefully chosen in these speeches, it was a commendable speech. Um, what is going on in your head? Think of this, if your mind was a house, what would it be like for people to walk into it? You say, oh, please don't. <laughs> I don't want them to see this. Well, then we got work to do, don't we? We need some inner house cleaning inside that we need to do. See, it's not just about cleaning up the outside of your life. It's not just clean the outside of the cup, but it doesn't matter what happens in here. No, God cares about what goes on on the inside. He knows, and this is also reflects, this is your core of your being. This is your mind, your heart, your, the, your inner life. This is, this is the real you. It's not just clean up what other people see around you so that you're respectable, but God wants you to work on what's on the inside. So think about that. What if people could walk into the house of your mind? Would you be embarrassed? Would you be worried? Would you be ashamed? Or are there thoughts that they would say, that's admirable, that's commendable, that's, that's something that would be spoken well of? And again, we're all in process. But we need to be working on what is going on in here, taking control of it, doing that, doing that cleaning at what is in the interior of our thought life. All right, so... We have six, we got two more to go here. Excellent. So, think about things that are excellent. Okay? Good ad bodacious. Or either you know what I'm talking about or you don't. <laughs> things that are very high in quality, virtuous. So sometimes it gets translated as virtue. It's talking about moral excellency. Nothing of substandard quality. So really, this word is think, associated with things that are uh, associated with the virtues, the way things ought to be, things that are high, that are virtuous. Things that strengthen godly character. Okay, if something is truly virtuous, it's going to strengthen your character. It's going to strengthen who you are. It's going to be help you, quality thoughts, help you to become more of a quality person. Quality as God defines it. Second Peter 1.3 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's the same word. So if you are saved, it means that God's divine power, okay, so it's not just you, none of this is just from your strength. Remember, it's God working in and through you. But he has called you and he's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's not, you can't say, well, there's something I'm missing so I can't really do this. No, he's given you what you need and called you to his glory and his excellence. That's the goal for us. You know, he is the definition of this quality of thinking of life that we're supposed to be living at. It's not the world's version, but it's God's version. I think this is, let me throw in a question here. We're talking about all these different things and we're saying, well, these are the only things things we're supposed to think about and things that are excellent and virtuous, does that mean that we're supposed to ignore uh, the sin that's in the world? I mean, we live in a world where there's a lot of sin. You know, there's a lot of evil, there's a lot of pain, there is a lot of ugliness. And I think what Paul is saying here is not to say, well, just ignore all that, stick your head in the sand, don't deal with it. Because I think we are supposed to deal with it. We're supposed to be 
active, we're supposed to be aware, but that's not what should consume us. That shouldn't be our primary focus. And if those things, we allow them to, those things to be our primary focus, that's going to shift your thinking and your life in a certain direction. It's going to be unhealthy. So yeah, God does want us in this world to, you know, deal with the sin in our life, uh, you know, to be people that are working for, you know, the good of our neighbors and acknowledging the things that are sin and the pain that is out there. Uh, Not just, you know, being oblivious to this. But in order to do that, you need to fill your head so much with the way things ought to be that God's goodness, his beauty, his standard, so that you don't just get deadened to the other things that are out there and you just get used to it and have it control your hearts and your thoughts, your mind. The last thing that he lists Anything that is worthy of praise. So is it worth your praise? Maybe I'll say it another way. Anything that deserves your applause. Think of what praise really is. You're applauding it. You're admiring it. You're saying, this is good. I lift this up. Obviously, the one that is ultimately and truly worthy of our praise is God himself. And we know that. And there are things that underneath him we say, these are, these are good things as long as we applaud it in the right level. But are these things that you think about, are they worthy of the applause of your heart? Are they worthy of the, the admiration of your mind and your heart? So I want you to think about what is it that you praise? What is it that you applaud? Um, maybe people see you applauding this and they would know. Maybe it's things that you applaud, that you praise in your mind, and God knows what it is. Would God consider these things worthy of praise? Are they genuinely praiseworthy? You know, this morning we sang, Come, let us adore him, Jesus Christ the Lord, the ultimate one that we should adore, that we should praise. What you fill your mind with shapes you. That's why it's so important for us to think about this. The more that we think about something, the more important it becomes to us. That's part of how it shapes us. And the more important something is to us, the more we'll also think about it. It's kind of a cycle. It goes both ways. And so you keep thinking about something, it becomes the center of your thoughts. It's more important. You want to think about it more and more. And it can be something that can lead you to God or it can be something that can lead you away from God and get you focused and spiraled on this other thing, whether it's some idol out there, whether it's yourself, uh, or this can be something where you realize that God is more and more important. You're thinking about him in this cycle. In the same way, the less that we think about something, the less important it becomes to us. So sometimes there are things we just need to think less about. We need to stop worrying about them. You know, give, you know, there's a proper concern, but give it over to God so that it doesn't have to consume your mind and your thoughts all the time. Taking up precious retail space in here that should belong to God and focusing on him. And so part of this, fill your head with the right thing, filter out the other things, try not to think about these other things as much. If it's sinful, if it's impure, all the way don't think about it. But even the other things that you need to think about, don't let it take over too much space so that it becomes more important because then it'll start to become an idol to you. And this also means that the less we think about God, the less we think about the Bible, the less important God and his word would become to us. 
So it's not enough to say, well, just, you know, once a week or once every once in a while, I'll think about God for a little bit. Yeah, things that you only think about once in a while are not very important. Remember, God is not meant to be and is not a background function running automatically in your life that you don't have to pay attention to. God wants your heart. He wants your thoughts. He wants to have relationship with you. And that means part of your thinking about him. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In Hebrew, the term heart was used to describe the central core of someone's being. It wasn't just emotions. It also included your thoughts. So keep control of your, your heart, your thought life as well, with, with vigilance. Care about it. Screen it. Because from it flows the springs of life. So much of our spiritual life takes place in our head. We tend to think about that. So much spiritual warfare Really, the arena where most spiritual warfare happens is uh, between these two sides of your skull, in the middle there, in your thoughts. God cares about what goes on in your, in your mind or your heart. And Jesus talked that. We saw that already. He said you know, in Matthew 5 that um, murder and lust in your heart or your mind is sin. He cares about that. And also... The problem of only focusing on outer behavior, if you were to do that, is that if you only change your outer behavior without changing your heart and mind, you haven't changed which is actually, that which is actually the most important. What God really cares about. He doesn't want just outward behavior modification. He cares about what's going on in, the, in your inner world. Don't just clean the outside. Clean the inside. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside may be clean. So what we fill our mind with shapes us because it flows from the inside and it flows out. And then another thing to ask yourself is what you devote your mind to worthy of your devotion. When you devote your thinking, you devote your mind to something, um, you are giving that time, that attention, yourself to it. What you are devoting your mind to, you are devoting yourself to. Are these things worth your focus? Are they worth you serving these things with your mind? in the time that you have. And the Lord is the one who ultimately fills all of these descriptions that we've seen. And so he's the one we need to focus on. And everything else that is like one of these descriptions, it flows from him and it comes from him. He's the gift and he's the source of all of this. I mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but I want you to think about it again. Is your mind more like a car or a train? A train, remember, it's on its track. It goes where it goes. And that's the way most people live. It's just a chain reaction heading down. A car, you decide where it goes. You can take control of this. Your thought life, are you going to take control of it to filter and fill it in the right way, to turn it away from things that are, that are dangerous, that are ugly, that are sinful? Are you going to fill it with things that are good and where it is right? 
And if you want a Christian mindset, we've been talking about this the whole time in Philippians, you need to do this. To have a Christian mindset, to have this Christian way of thinking, which Paul keeps talking about in this letter, we need to fill our minds with the right things. It doesn't just happen automatically. It's not a one-time say a little prayer and it's all good to go. You'd be filling your minds with the right things and therefore pushing out the impure. What you dwell upon matters. Now verse 9, we're just going to look at this quickly. Put into practice what has been patterned to you. Verse 9, Paul writes, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So when we look at this, what verse 9 is telling us, I mean, look at the first part of it. It talks about things that you've learned, you've received, so you've taken it in, uh, in different ways. You've, you've heard it, you've heard teaching, you've also seen it. You've seen it in Paul's life. It's not just what he said, but you've, uh, he's telling the Philippians, the way that you've seen me and others live our lives, live your life in the same way. So, Verse 9 tells us, one, the Christian life requires learning in the right way. Because remember, he said, what you have learned from me. And the other words, I think, are just kind of unpacking and explaining that. What, he's, what they've been taught, what has been patterned to them in their lives. So that is important. It is important. Learning is something that goes on in the head. We need to learn different truths. We need to learn what is right. We need to learn what we should follow. But the command in this verse is practice these things. So it's not just a matter of getting your head game right, thinking the right thoughts, but you also need to live these things out. It's both what goes on in our head, our thinking, but also in our living, in our actions. It's both of these. So the Christian life requires learning and the Christian life requires acting on what you have learned. It starts with the mind focusing on God, but it also needs to be lived out in the real world as well. So it's not just about having the right theology, the right doctrine, and I hope you do have the right doctrine. Right doctrine, right belief is important. It's fill your mind with what is true, but then you also have right action, right practice, living this out in the world. And these are patterns. It doesn't use the word for pattern, but patterns are meant to be followed. Paul is saying, what you've seen in me, let me be an example to you. He said this in this letter already. And he's talked about Timothy, he's talked about Epaphroditus as examples that's supposed to imitate the good things in their life. And ultimately, the ultimate one that he mentions, and he talks about over and over, and especially in chapter 2, is Jesus Christ. To be like him, to be this, have the servant attitude that he had, to model, pattern ourselves after Christ. So ask yourself, what patterns, what examples are you following? And what pattern are you laying down for the people around you, for your kids? And the result of all this, it says practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Last week he talked about, when we bring our prayer to him, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your minds, hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It says he is the God of peace. And he's a God of peace that will be not just giving you a gift of peace, but he himself will be that peace. 
the God that is of peace will also be with you. Now, as we get closer to Christmas, we remember this. We finish by reading it from Luke 2. And in the same region with the shepherd, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Focus your mind on the God of peace come to earth in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you're a God that cares about all of us. You care about what happens on the outside in our actions, but you also care what is on the inside of us. And Lord, we confess to you that there's so many things in our hearts and our thoughts that are not right. We are polluted, we are contaminated by sin. And so as we think of this and as we are grieved, let this be something that drives us to you, Lord God. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you as Savior, may they come to you knowing that the blood of Christ is the only cleansing agent enough to cleanse them of all of their impurity, all of their sin, because you have died on the cross in their place for those that, that trust you and they can have this salvation offered to them as a free gift. May they believe in you and be saved from their sin. And they also, with all of their debt canceled that instant, and now this process of you working in our hearts to make us more and more like the pure and perfect image of Jesus Christ. And for those of us that do trust you, Lord God, we thank you that Jesus Christ came for us. And Lord, we ask that you would be at work. Search our minds. Search our hearts. If there are evil and pure ways in us, all of that, help us to realize it, to repent of it, to put it out of our mind. And to instead, to flood our minds with that which is true, with that which is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise according to your definition. Lord God, change us from the inside out, and may Jesus Christ be glorified. In his name we pray, amen.